So we're in the middle of this unstoppable series that we've been in for a few weeks now, and we've been looking at how in the world did the movement of Jesus get going in the first century? So much so that a couple thousand years later, we would be in a basement in San Francisco. And if you're cold today, anybody cold in the room today? All right, it was a thousand degrees last week, so we're just making up for that. My wife's like, I'm cold. I'm like, listen, I got to stand under those lights. This is good. Uh, But we've been in this series where we're looking at how did this thing take off in the first century? Especially when you consider that Jesus, after his resurrection, he wasn't on earth very long. He exited the stage. He entrusted it to a group of men and certainly women that would lead it forward. And they weren't like the best of the best, if that makes sense. So how did it get going? And we've been using the book of Acts in the Bible as our guide for this series called Unstoppable. And we launched off with week one saying in Acts 1-8, which is the theme verse for all of Acts, and it really, in that one verse, holds the entire plan for the movement of Jesus, including what we're doing as Epic Church in San Francisco. Jesus said this to his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you live, and in all Judea, the region you live in, and in Samaria, which is the next region over, which is close geographically, but not close culturally. And ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now what's interesting when Jesus said that, you can imagine, if you know anything about history, they didn't really know where the ends of the earth were back then. And so in their minds, they obviously didn't have the kind of travel. So Jesus says to them, here's the plan. The Holy Spirit's going to give you the power. You will be my witnesses, which means you will tell of what I have done and what I've done in you. And then it will spread, starting in the city where you are now and then throughout your region, the next region over. And ultimately, the ripple effect will keep going into the ends of the earth. And so that's the plan. Well, on the day of Pentecost, which is this crazy Jewish festival that happened year after year after year, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And it came in power. And Peter preached the very first distinctively Christian message that day. And the response was overwhelming. Around 3,000 people placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins on that one day. Those 3,000 or so were baptized. If you think, you know, if you get upset when we have a lot of baptisms here, just imagine you would be waiting around forever there. Uh, and then the, the church is birthed right there with these 3,000 people. And there's a, it's a big church right from the get-go, but they're meeting in houses and they're meeting in the temple day after day after day. They have all things in common. And it says that God added to that group of Christians every single day those who are being saved from their sins. So this amazing movement's happening, but not everyone is for the movement, if you know what I mean. And then when you open Acts 3, I just want to give you the highlights, and then we're going to get into Acts 4 this morning ourselves. But in Acts 3, there's a day in which Peter and John are going to the temple for a time of prayer. And on their way into the temple, there is a lame beggar who's on a mat. He's being carried to the place that he would lie down outside the temple every single day. So everyone knows him. And as he's being carried and Peter and John, their eyes meet and the guy asks for donations, which he would beg for every single day. Peter and John, or Peter says to him, look at us. And the guy thinks at that moment, he's going to be handed some silver or gold. And he says, look at us. And then Peter says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And a man who had been crippled from birth, who's now over 40 years of age, does that very thing. He gets up off of his mat. 
He begins to walk. The text even says that he begins to leap. And while leaping, he's praising God, as I think we might do if we couldn't walk. And then one day after 40 years of being crippled. And so that's what happens. Well, you can imagine someone that's healed in such a miraculous fashion that everyone's familiar with day after day of seeing him. You can imagine there was quite a crowd that gathered at that moment. And the crowd gathered in what's known as Solomon's portico around the temple. And it's in this setting where Peter gives the second Christian message in church history. And his message is still the same, which we need to take note of that. The message hasn't changed. The methods for reaching people, those things have changed. People have different styles, this and that. But the core message of Christianity, whatever denomination, the all, the, God's intent for it has always been that God sent Jesus, right? Galatians 4 says it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under woman, born under the, born of woman, born under, not under the woman, although whatever, um, born of woman, don't go there, under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And so Peter gives that message. You killed Jesus, but that's part of God's plan. God raised Jesus from the dead. Now you can have forgiveness of sin. And I want you to see in Acts chapter 4 what happens in the middle of Peter's message. So if you have a Bible, Acts 4. If you need a Bible to follow along, just lift a hand and our great hospitality team will get one to you. Keep your hands up. Acts chapter 4. We will look at verses 1 through 12 in just a moment. If you're receiving a Bible, this is a gift from us to you. Keep it. You'll be able to follow along. You can do some reading on your own. Before we look at Acts 4, I want to remind you or tell you for the first time that in this Unstoppable series, we've been looking through four different lenses. The first lens is a historical lens where we simply ask, what happened? The second lens is a theological lens where we ask the question, what can we learn about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? And the theological piece for today is really massive. And you're going to see in these 12 verses of Acts 4, the Father, Son, and Spirit all present. And you're going to, uh, you're going to see communicated to this audience and by proxy to the rest of us this massive claim of how we get to God and who among us can actually have a relationship with God. So we'll see the theological piece. Then there's this missional piece where we ask, how did this thing start in Jerusalem and then spread and expand? And the missional thing's interesting today because you're going to see that oftentimes the movement of Jesus spread in the midst of difficult trials and circumstances. And the fourth lens is a vision lens where we simply ask, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for us as Epic Church? And then today, what does it mean for the city of San Francisco that we live in? And what does it mean for the world in which we live? So stand with me. I will read Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And I want to just ask you to do something for the next 25 minutes or so. Engage this text. I think if you honestly engage the text, there are some things in the text that should shock you just historically, if nothing else. But I think even spiritually, some things in the text that should shock all of us, I think. Acts 4, 1 through 12. Remember, Peter's in the middle of his message. Don't get any ideas here, by the way. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Maybe seated. If you honestly engage the text we just read, I can think of at least four things in that specific text that should shock you a little bit. The first thing that should shock you a little bit is that while Peter is giving his talk like I'm doing right now, he and the other apostles are arrested. Some of you are like, Ben, that would be amazing. If we could just get rescued from this moment and get to lunch a little early, because I promised my girlfriend I would finally come to church. So if you would just, you have the authorities would just come in, arrest you, take you out the back, whatever. So he gets arrested and the rest of them get arrested in the middle of his message. So that's one thing that happens. The second thing that I find really shocking is that while he's getting arrested and the other guys are getting arrested, thousands of people place their faith in Jesus. That's shocking. The third thing that I find shocking is that a man who's been crippled from birth, who's over 40 years of age, has just been healed and the religious people aren't fans of that. Religious people are always the worst, aren't they? Like no fun. This guy has never been able to walk. He's in his 40s. And they're like, this is terrible. And the fourth thing that might shock some of you in the room today is just the exclusive claim of Peter in verse 12, where he says there's really only one way to God. We'll get there. All right, we'll get there. So in the beginning, you have Peter giving this message. Again, this core message is that God sent Jesus. Jesus died for the sins of the world. God raised Jesus from the dead. And that's what he's speaking. And the guys come in and drag him off. Now, can you imagine that happening in this moment? Can you imagine someone coming and who would like, raise your hand if you'd be a fan of that. Just just to see it one time. Just trying to, uh, you know, every pastor has enemies. I'm just trying to figure out where mine are sitting. Got some darts in my back pocket. So... He's arrested. And, that, and what's crazy, oftentimes what looks, what, what looks like a difficult circumstance in our lives, it, it lessens or shrinks our confidence in, in how life is going and how it's ultimately going to finish. But a thing that we learn here right from Peter and throughout the rest of Acts and throughout the entire scriptures that's a really counterintuitive lesson is this one. Oftentimes, the movement of Jesus has advanced the most when it's been challenged the most. Think about that for a second. When our circumstances are less than stellar, we think that our lives are falling apart, right? And I can imagine, I might think that if someone comes and arrests me in the middle of this message and they take me out, I might think this is the worst. When will I see my wife and kids again and all of those things, right? How am I going to use that one phone call? I mean, all kinds of things would be on my mind. But we tend to think when something a little bad or really bad happens circumstantially that we've got to throw our confidence down. But friends, let's not assume that our confidence in God needs to shrink when we face difficult challenges. You never know what God might use in your life to ignite the movement. You never know. And listen, I'm not praying, I'm not wishing for us to have terrible circumstances in our lives, but oftentimes it's in those spaces where God does the greatest work and where the movement advances the most. Now, I think there are probably some correlations as to why this happens. 
When you can no longer rely on yourself, right? Let's face it. When, I, uh, when we decided to start this church in San Francisco, uh, one of the pieces of advice that someone who was familiar with this area of the city especially said to me, Ben, you just need to know that the people who live there are insulated from any real needs. And so we live in a place where there's a lot of self-reliance, right? You people are gifted. The degrees that you have, the schools that you went to, I didn't even apply to those schools, okay? I, 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 didn't even, I didn't even go for it. And so there's a lot of self-reliance that can happen. But when we get in a situation that our money can't help us out of and our degrees can't help us out of and our connections and networks can't help us out of, oftentimes those are the ones who are like, God, okay, I guess you're all I have. Friends, some of us need to be in a place where God is all we have so that we can understand that he is what we need. Do you remember a time when these disciples would have done anything to avoid being arrested? It was only a couple months prior to this moment. Peter didn't want to be associated with Jesus whatsoever. And now he's like, I'm telling about Jesus and now I'm being arrested. So he's arrested. But then I want you to see in verse 4, the, the word but is there. And I'm not trying to be inappropriate, but uh, this but is a, a huge but, all right? This is massive. I, I want you to see verses 3 and 4 and understand what is being said. And you're going to see a dynamic that happens that is like true universally for Christians. He said, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard his word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. You would expect it to say, and they were arrested, and everyone went on their way fearful. Wouldn't you expect that? Like, if I get arrested, some of you are like, I'm out. While they're being arrested is the way the text reads, right? While they're being taken away from this massive crowd at Solomon's portico, just outside of the temple, while they're being arrested, thousands who were in the audience begin to place their faith in Jesus. Do you see the but there? They were arrested, but... They got their point across, yes? They were arrested, but thousands, 5,000 men, and we know there's always more women at church things than men, right, ladies? So come on, ladies, talk, come on. I need, I need a little bit of talk back here, okay? Like, ah, man, it's like, pastor, there's so many of us amazing women, especially in the young adult group, but there are just not many great men. And the few men are like, Ben, this is why I'm here at Epic. My chances are amazing. When you're one to eight, I am here, and I'm here for a reason, not just a season, right? I mean, I, ladies, just $20 from, from every single one of you. Um, so maybe there are twelve to 15,000 people total. We know there are 5,000 men, a massive group of people, and many of them have placed their faith in Jesus. While the leaders of the movement are being arrested, you never know what God might use. And some of us, we need some more buts in our lives in terms of our confidence. We need to go, hey, I wish this was different, but God can use it. I don't want to have this disease, but God can use it. I wish I had been raised in a different way, but God can do something different. Do you have any of those in your life? Every one of us either lives with what is um, dictated to us from our past, or we've met Jesus, encountered him, and realized our, our future can look different. We just have a handful of values here at Epic, but here's one of them. Because of the grace of Jesus Christ, your past doesn't have to dictate your future, so why don't you quit letting it? But Ben, I was raised. Okay, but there's a but that Jesus wants to give you. We all have something back there. Like you're not the only person with a past in the room. Everyone with a beating heart in this space has a past. 
And Jesus wanted to go, hey, but. So some of you think your life is over because of your circumstances, right? You're in your mid-40s and you're not married yet. You think, oh, it's over. Or you can't find the kind of job that you want. And you just need to know that the movement Jesus has invited you into, it is unstoppable. So no matter what things look like today, if he is the undefeated one, we need to press in and sometimes we need to hang on. Quit letting your confidence in how things are going to go be dictated by your circumstances. And so they're arrested and the movement goes forward. You see, when the opponents of the movement of Jesus tried to end the movement of Jesus, it actually picked up steam. But we think, oh, if I was in that situation, it would just be over. Sometimes God advances his mission the most, not through your glorious days, but through your difficult days. No, I'm not praying difficult days for you, okay? I don't want difficult days for me, but I know in my life, God has used those things the most to stretch and grow my faith. And he's used those things in our church too. We rally around each other when when we're most desperate for God to move. And so the conversation goes on. They arrest him at night, but because it's too late in the evening, they, they, they just hold off meeting with them till the next day. And the next day, they, they sit the apostles in the midst of this big, intense meeting. Um, I know that you're probably either, if it's a community project or a company you work for, or whatever the case may be, do any of you um, have meetings and you know if certain individuals are in the room, there's no way your idea is getting passed? Anybody? Seriously? Oh, you are those individuals. All right. Um, <laughs> You know how this is, though. Like, if you're trying to pitch an idea, the same thing even works here. In our church. Like, like, you know, if there are certain people in the room, it's like, wah, wah. Um, and that's why I never put those people into leadership. But uh, joking. No, I'm not. I am not joking. But, you know, in your places of work or if you're working on a project or whatever the case may be, if so-and-so is present, you know things aren't going to go well. Well, they try to bring the big dogs of the religious elite community, like the entire high priestly family and others are showing up. And so it would be a little bit intimidating, right? You know, if somebody shows up, or especially if you're not expecting certain people to be there, and they show up, you're like, this isn't going to end well. Um, these guys know that it was the high priestly family and others who had Jesus crucified, okay? So just imagine that you've spent the night in prison, and you're there, and now the council's gathered around you, and they're questioning you. There was a time, remember, again, when Peter was questioned, and he gave um, them answers that, that he thought would help him out. Do you remember that when he denied Jesus? He's questioned, and he's like, I don't know this man. And he basically, for the third time he responds that way, he's literally cursing, saying, I have nothing to do with this man. And now they're sitting in, and they're going to answer this guy truthfully. How many of you, um, when you're less than your best Christian self, have a smart mouth? Stop it. Come on, get them high. This is something like, this is how we know. We've been, come on. Yeah, thank you. Peter was that way. Peter's like, they're sitting in the council. He's like, let me get this straight. You arrested us because a man couldn't walk for 40 years and now he can walk. Is that, am I, are, are we clear? Is, that, is this really the reason why you arrested us? Because, because there's a power that you guys don't possess and you're trying to control this entire movement. You see, they killed Jesus to end the movement. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot with this series, and you may hear it in a few weeks too, but like, what would it be like for these religious leaders who tried to end the movement by killing Jesus and tried to arrest these guys? What if they walked in the room and could time travel this morning? Think about this. They thought they had snuffed the movement out. They thought they had extinguished the movement. If they could walk in through these doors or in churches all over the world a couple of thousand years later in a place called America that they were unclear about, obviously, they walked in and, and realized we were talking about and trying to orient our entire lives around Jesus. What, what would they think? Like, yeah, I guess we didn't win. <laughs> you know, I guess that was pointless. 
They would, I, you can imagine how dumb. They're dumbfounded right here in the first century because they thought Jesus was the end of the story once they killed him. If they walked in here and go, wait, the undefeated one, we defeated him. No, you didn't. You know? It would be amazing to see. And so, and, and, and so Peter's like, I'll give you the answer. And Peter gives the same answer for all of it. Just like, if you didn't grow up in church, you might not know this, but if you're ever in a small group or if you're teaching kids, um, if you never know what the answer is, it's always Jesus, okay? Just like Jesus, right? Like who built the ark? Jesus. (laughs) Who freed the people? And then, you, and then you just get real nuanced with your response and your reasoning. You're like, no, no, Jesus working through Noah. Or, you know, whatever. Um, well, in this moment, that's the only answer Peter gives. He's like, he's like, by what power, what name did you do this? Peter said, if we're being examined by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So it's Jesus that you crucified. It's Jesus that God raised from the dead. Jesus is the reason that this man is standing here. And then he says to them in verse 11, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Um, Anybody terrible when it comes to being handy besides me? Like, I mean, terrible. Come on, isn't that why you moved here and don't have a yard? Anybody besides me? You know the old commercial from Home Depot? It made me, I just, I just, I had to become a Lowe's man. Because do you remember this? Home Depot is like, hey, you can do it and we can help. No, bro, I'm paying you to do it. And if you want to find someone else to help, go for it. But I need, I I need some help. I, I, I cannot do it. I don't have it. So there's a construction analogy in verse 11. The builders rejected a stone. That stone that they rejected has become the capstone. As best I understand it in my limited construction knowledge of the first century is that there would be this stone that would really hold the entire foundation together. It's a larger stone, obviously. It would be put, obviously, of course, in a corner somewhere, it was, and it was crucial. And what Peter is saying is that you rejected Jesus, and you didn't think he was significant at all just as a stone, but you need to understand this. This insignificant stone that you've rejected, he is the, such a significant stone that he's the cornerstone holding all of reality together. Again, I'm not a construction guy, but he's, say, he's saying you, 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 you threw this stone away so that you could keep your power and control. And I love what he does there. He's, he's using Psalm 118.22, which says um, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this word builders is real interesting too because these are the ones who are building up the religious structure. Does that make sense? So he's saying you you guys are building their structure. You decided there's no room for Jesus in the structure at all of your religious power and control. But not only is there no room for Jesus at all in your minds, the Jesus whom you have no room in your life for, he is the cornerstone, the, the centerpiece holding it all together. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. And Peter's going, he is and has everything to do with the reality of the world. You rejected him, but he's become the cornerstone. Is he the cornerstone of your life? There's no room for him just to be a stone and certainly not to be a stone rejected by you. And in verse 12, here comes the just interesting points of Christianity that some of you are, are already disagree with, but let me just give it to you, and then, and then I want to try to walk through it logically. 
Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The movement of Jesus is both inclusive and exclusive. The movement of Jesus, and, and depending on where you're at on that, you want to argue with me that I included the other one, right? The movement of Jesus is both inclusive and exclusive. You see it in Acts. You see it throughout the entire scriptures. Um, let's just start with the classic verse, John three 16. I'm going to say a phrase or a word, and you tell me if, if that shows uh, the, the message of Jesus to be exclusive or inclusive, okay? Everybody ready? All right. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So it's beautiful. It's inclusive. It's available to any and every one. And this message you'll see in our next series. We'll continue in Acts in a series uh, that starts May 15th called Enter the Story. But you'll see in Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter of all people has no clue that the message isn't just for the Jews. Which is crazy when you think about Peter. His mind is blown that the Gentiles could know God through Jesus too. But it's, it's inclusive. It's available to everyone. But it's exclusive. It's available to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It's inclusive. It's available to everyone. But it's exclusive, meaning that no one comes to God on their own terms. So we have to ask this question. It's a question you should be asking. And and some of us have assumptions about this answer to the question. Aren't there other ways to God besides Jesus? Like, Ben, you get paid to do this one. I'm keeping quiet. I want to think about it logically. Let me say this first, because it's been fun. My, uh, Sean and I have a a fourth grade son and his teachers, uh, like great when it comes to sharing cultural, uh, and current events with the class, but always with her slant in mind. And so we've had a lot of fun discussions in our home this week. And one of the things I've been talking to Sam about is there's a way that, that, that we, um, can think and believe in terms of how society is engaging uh, lots of issues and, and how society gets along. But there are other things that we think because we're Christians. And so let me first say that um, Christians, uh, uh, among all people, should be for religious liberty. Does that make sense? If you look at church history, it, it never went so well when they tried to make everyone a Christian. That's a terrible idea from a political point of view. We should be for religious liberty in so much as it doesn't, uh, someone's uh, religion doesn't allow them to, uh, you know, do things that that obviously are unlawful and and terrible. So we should be pro-religious liberty. But as Christians, we need to understand what is being taught here, that there's salvation found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Obviously, the implication being saved from our sins. There's no way, Peter is saying to that crowd, to have a relationship with God outside of Jesus. Now, before you think about your 21st century self, think about these first century Jewish leaders who thought they had the corner on religion. Just think about what they're hearing this. They have constructed, right? They're the builders of the religion. They've constructed a way to get to God. And it's by, it's, it's by following all the commands. You don't have to like people, but just obey the commands, right? You don't have to celebrate a crippled man coming to walk and leap on his feet, but you have to adhere to these strict commandments and you've got to do the Sabbath and you've, you know, all of these things. And, and so it, when they're hearing this, he, again, he's saying like, you don't have any room for Jesus and there's no way to the God you claim to know and 
claim to speak for unless you go through Jesus. So if you think, oh, Ben, this is tolerant 21st century. I can't handle that. It was much crazier for them to handle that in the first century. With me? Because, oh, by the way, we think we have the corner on God and we killed the one that you're saying provides the only path to God. Let me say this logically a little bit. Just appeal to your logic. If Jesus is one of many ways to God, then isn't God cruel for making him a sinless, perfect man endure the cross if there were other options? I don't know that intellectually, if you're being honest with yourself, that you could say anything besides if there were nine or ten options or even another option, you would have to assert, I think, I would have to assert that God was cruel for making Jesus go through the, the, the unnecessary portion of the cross. And if you're here this morning, you're going, Ben, there's just got to be another way. What I want to do is show you, even though it may sound heretical at first, I want to show you um, when Jesus basically uh, asked the Father, um, isn't there another way? You're like, Ben, that's heretical. Let me show you this from Mark 14, 36. Lean in if you haven't been paying attention. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus is in a dark moment. He's headed to the cross. This crazy great suffering is about to take place in his life. He's going to um, be hung on a cross. He's going to be separated for the first time in all of eternity from God the Father. And here's what he says. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You can do, you can, wherever there's a way, you can make that happen. You can do anything. You have all power and all authority and all creative wisdom. You can, you can do it. Everything is possible for you. And then he says this line, remove this cup from me. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that in that line right there and in this prayer from Jesus to God the Father, that he's saying, find another way. Can we agree on that? Just logically? Find another way. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so I think if you're honest, Jesus is saying to God, God, if there are other options, then help me walk away from this one but not what I want. Here's what I want. What did Jesus want? He wanted to have another way. Like, Ben, how does that fit? 100% human, 100% God. Mm. He's asking for another way. Does God answer his prayer? Trick question. I see two prayers from Jesus in this. Do you? So I'm going to ask you one at a time, and I think that'll help you answer definitively. Does God answer the prayer, remove this cup from me? Even if you're not a church person, you probably know Christian history. Does God answer that prayer? Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Next prayer, not what I will, but what you will. Does God answer that prayer? So you tell me if there are multiple ways to God. Why did God do the cruel thing and let Jesus endure suffering? And why didn't he answer that prayer if it was possible? There's only one thing we can intellectually assert. 
either Jesus isn't a way to God at all, and he died for no good reason, or he in his death and resurrection became the only way. Part of why we struggle with this is we live, for the most part, with a sense of entitlement. Right? Some of you are in the range where they're like, oh, that's the entitled generation. I think we all live fairly entitled most of the time. I work hard. I deserve this. I'm alive in America in 2016. I deserve this. I'm great to be around, so I deserve Right? So if you live entitled, you might think, oh, God really owes me a number of options. All that work out in a way that I get a good life and perhaps a good afterlife. But if you see the holiness of God and you see your sin and I see my sin in light of that holiness, none of us are upset at that point that there aren't multiple ways. We are utterly amazed that there is a way. And if you find in your own heart, like, there's a love for Jesus lacking, it could have to do with the fact that you think there are lots of ways for you to get to God. The scriptures are clear. We prayed it earlier, but in Philippians 2, Paul says that at the end of time, all Christians and non-Christians are going to come to this moment where they're going to bow the knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. Everyone's going to confess that. My hope would be what you've seen and heard and what we're experiencing in our church in this season, that you would confess it today if you haven't. Let me ask you this question. Who or what are you looking to for your salvation? Another way to think about it is what are you looking to ultimately for your deliverance? Uh, One of the phrases the Bible uses about this is what have you set your hopes on? And can what you're setting your hopes on, can it provide ultimate salvation for you? If it's pleasure if it's wealth, if it's approval of others, if it's success, if it's fame, can, can it deliver? Jesus has invited us into this unstoppable movement. But we need to get clear that salvation, our ultimate deliverance, is found in him alone. The gospel message is this, that we can be reconciled to God by his grace alone, him giving us what we don't deserve through our faith alone, believing that he died for our sins and was raised from the dead, but through Jesus alone. And I want to invite you, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, don't walk out of these doors before doing so. If you're in process, we'd love to meet with you. You can let us know in your communication card if that's your response or if you're interested in talking with one of our staff or leaders about that. But there's way too much at stake. There's way too much at stake to at least not wrestle with what you've heard today. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that your word, it informs us, it leads us, it shows us, it reveals who you are and reveals who we are and reveals what we should do about that. God, it's incredible, incredible that you would devise a plan to have Jesus pay for our sins rather than us. And out of that exchange, we get life with you. We get forgiveness. We get grace and mercy. And God, I pray that my love for you would grow because you made a way when there was no way. When I was a rebellious teenager, God, when my friends in this room had nothing to bring to the table to gain a relationship with you, you came to us. You stepped into human skin, Jesus. 
Scriptures say over and over again, you loved us and gave yourself up for us. You loved us and gave yourself up for us. When the fullness of time had come, God, you sent forth your son, Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. So God, we're not just amazed that our sins are forgiven, though that's massive. We're not just amazed that we'll spend eternity with you. We're amazed that in all of this exchange, you become our father. We become adopted sons and daughters. We celebrate that today. God, I pray that you would cement these truths. May we leave here grateful that you've made a way for us. In your name, Jesus, amen. Would you stand as our band gets ready to lead us in response time?